The Catholic Channel on Sirius XM 129 presents America This Week, a smart Catholic take on faith and culture with Father Matt Malone and Carrie Weber. Good day. You're listening to America This Week, a smart Catholic take on faith and culture. I'm Carrie Weber. And I'm Tim Reedy. Each week we offer news and analysis from the intersection of the church and the world gathered by the team at America Magazine. And uh, I'm sitting in for Father Matt Malone this week, and I'm joined, we're joined today by our colleague, uh, Eric Sundrup, Father Eric Sundrup. We have a wonderful article by Father Richard Clifford. Uh, You can find it, again, at our website, americamagazine.org. It's called, Women Have Been Leading Since Biblical Times. They Can Lead Again Today. Uh, And Father Richard Clifford is a professor emeritus of Old Testament at Boston College School of Theology and Ministry. He was formerly uh, president of the Weston Jesuit School of Theology, uh, and is a very accomplished scholar, and we are very glad to have him here with us today. Welcome to the show, Father Richard Clifford. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Uh, now, you pack quite a bit into this article, uh, a lot of biblical history, a lot of wonderful analysis. Uh, I wonder if you could uh, start with what spurred you to write on this topic now, this uh, combination of, of women and today and women in leadership in the Bible. Well, I, I came to, uh, one reason I came to it was the kind of rediscovery of Mary of Magdala uh, in the last few decades. I think for a long time she was misidentified as the sinful woman in, uh, uh, in the uh, Gospel of Luke in Luke 7 and 8. And uh, I began to see that she had uh, an enormous role in the New Testament, and I kind of worked backwards. Uh, I was at a panel one time, not knowing what I should say, but I knew it had to be about women. And as the, uh, each panelist spoke, I realized more that I had to come up with something in the next 30 or 40 seconds. So I just remembered that the, uh, what, uh, what always struck me uh, at, the, uh, at the transition from Abraham's family becoming a people in the book of Exodus, that there were no male leaders at all in that decisive turning point, and the only people who did anything were five women, only two of which have names preserved. And so I kind of put that initial thing and, and the last thing with Mary Magdala, and I filled in the blanks between with uh, Hannah and uh, Mary. So right, so the, the premise... Grew, grew yeah. yeah, so the, your premise is that there's th- three. there are three major turning points in biblical history, and in each one right. there are men who are in leadership who their leadership fails or they are absent, and along come these women in the Bible who are picking up the slack, they're using wit, they're using courage, and they aren't the recognized authority, but they do show the power that uh, they, are, they possess to lead the community. Yes, that's that's the main point, and I, the the other thing is that the biblical history doesn't go along in a straight line as if it were one thing after another. There are turning points, there are decisive moments when a uh, there's going to be something different in the future because of what happened in this particular moment, and uh, I just it, it just struck me that in these three decisive moments, there were no male leaders. It, in fact, it was the w- women who came out of nowhere to lead the community and to be the decisive uh, figures in that change. And it, in a certain sense, it allowed God to be more present when there was no one else there. And so it was the women who seemed to be responding directly to God's invitation to take up the slack and do something decisive. 
No, and no. So I, I, it, it struck me as very significant. The uh, well, let's drill down a little bit at the story of Moses. This is these are very familiar stories to us that we've learned growing right. up, but maybe we haven't seen him in this through this lens. But so we have the story of Moses. Basically, the the Pharaoh has dictated that all um, these children need to be thrown into the Nile, um, and right. and this pair of women, Moses' mother and sister, as you say, figure out how to ob- literally obey that order. Uh, to right. throw every baby boy into the Nile while utterly subverting it because they threw the infant in the, into a basket and then positioned Correct. it so that the Pharaoh's daughter would find it. So this was, a, you talk about key moments in the Bible, that's a big one. It is, and I think it shows that where men might have, we expect men sometimes to use uh, strength and uh, 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 skill in battle to, uh, to, to make a change. These women were using what was available to them, which was their brains and their skill and their uh, uh, ability to deceive and to uh, get things done and uh, do it in a very uh, uh, soft way, so to speak. And we don't know the name of Moses' mother and sister, is that correct? No, we only, we only know them because they were related to Moses. But one of the interesting things that happened that I think, it, it, I, I didn't put in the article, but I, I found it always significant. When Moses, who has got impeccable credentials to lead the people, because he's, he speaks Egyptian, he comes from Pharaoh's household, he's a Hebrew who still maintains the unity with the rest of these oppressed people. When he tries to intervene between two Hebrews, they ask him, who has made you judge and ruler over us? And he can't answer it, because at that point, he has not been called. And so he is unable until he le- uh, until time passes, and he he's called in the in the wilderness. He's unable to do anything. But prior to that time, these women who don't are not recorded as receiving any kind of call or invitation act on their own, and they're very effective in what they do. Well, it's interesting also because the Pharaoh's daughter uh, recognized uh, uh, Moses as a Hebrew, defied her father, uh, and saw that Moses was sort of was brought up in in their household. It's interesting thinking about where um, the the power is coming from women in very different positions in society as well, and That's yet right. they're all working together, which is I find uh, a real fascinating aspect of the story. Yeah, it is, and I think my guess is that uh, that Moses's mother and sister knew that Pharaoh's daughter was an open-minded uh, person who didn't mind defying her father on, a, on occasion. <laughs> so they figured they probably scoped her out and found out that they had an ally, uh, even though they may not have known her personally. Did a, did a little recon to prepare. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They uh, they scoped her out and they got a little uh, chart of what her weaknesses were. <laughs> <laughs> and just a reminder, listeners, why it was so important that Moses survived, not only that he would lead the Israeli people, but he's kind of, as you say, it enabled Abraham's whole family to survive and become a mighty people. That's right, yeah, because Pharaoh was putting a, uh, he, was pu- he was actually preventing them from going to the land that they were destined to go to, and he was also destroying their very, their, their very selves. They, he was making it impossible for there to be another generation, because at that time, uh, the um, uh, genealogy, the, uh, the descent lineage was based through the father, unlike modern Judaism. At that time, it was done through the males. And so if you get rid of the males, you, uh, you may effectively destroy the people as a people. And both of those things were so, they, they, they oppressed, uh, they were so oppressive that if the women hadn't acted, uh, Israel would not have uh, continued to exist as the Bible sees it. So that's, uh, 
they their actions were truly decisive. Now let's uh, talk about one of the other stories you mentioned, uh, from tribal chieftains to Davidic king. Uh, let's talk a little yeah. bit about uh, the agent of change, Hannah. Well, uh, the book of uh, one and two Samuel follow immediately the book of Judges, and while we think of the ju- well, the judges really were tribal chieftains. Uh, even though in English translations they are called judges, there were a series of twelve figures, uh, all of whom uh, were people who were designated to lead the the people of Israel at critical times. And then, after the rescue had been effected and the people had been uh, saved from whatever uh, oppressed them at the time, uh, they would go back to their farms. Uh, but the last judge was was Samson, and Samson was the, in many ways, the most gifted of all of the judges, the all of the tribal chieftains, but also the most self-centered and incompetent of them all. And so, uh, after at, at the death of Samson, when Samson uh, finished, the people were in a desperate position. And then there were two or three stories told at the end of the book of Judges, which are truly horrifying, uh, about the depravity and the decay of of government of government structures at that very moment uh this the uh, spotlight shifts to a woman who is an unhappy woman because she couldn't have children and you know she would be the least likely person to be an agent of change but because of her faith she believes this rather uh, conventional priestly uh blessing that may the lord be with you she takes that as a promise that she will have a child and the child that she has, Samuel, is the one who anoints, essentially, uh, ultimately anoints David as the king. And then the, and then the Davidic kingship uh, becomes a mode of governance that actually works for the people, unlike the uh, governance affected previously by the tribal chieftains. So, uh, you know, again, the most unlikely. And then her little baby, her little boy, is just a little kid. He's donated to the sanctuary. Uh, by uh, his mother, who is so grateful that she has him. She gives him back to God in a direct way. So it's really a touching story of a woman who, her husband loved her, but she was unhappy because she couldn't provide a child for her husband and for her family. It's an age that revered motherhood. She couldn't do it. And so, uh, again, the the least likely person you would would think of becomes the uh, agent of a vast change. And in the in the article you point out, and this, I think it's it'll be especially relevant to people in this season of Advent when we're going to hear this in a lot of the readings, the sort of the the parallels between uh, David's kingship and the uh, Christ kingship, and you compare a couple of the characters in this story with what we are right. familiar with and going to be hearing a lot about in, in uh, Advent and Christmas season. Correct. And Hannah's song, if you look at in one Samuel chapter two, is is really the prototype of uh, Mary's Magnificat. And if you just put them side by side, you will see that Mary basically is using Hannah's song. And, and I think there's a, there's a sisterhood between these two women that probably never, that surely never knew each other, uh, but who were in parallel situations in that uh, at a decisive turning point, uh, Mary also was a woman who could not have a child because she was, uh, she was, she was married to Joseph, but the only, uh, but they didn't come together to live together for uh, for a year or so after that uh, betrothal. So she was really unable to have a child in the same way that Hannah was unable to have a child. But her faith enabled her to do, to have a child, and that child, of course, not becomes, it's, it's, Jesus is not the one who announces a coming Davidite, but is himself 
the son of David. And so that that uh, is a great. Uh, I think the, one of the nice things about it is that it shows the continuity that there is a divine plan working that nobody knows about until a certain a later period in which people look back and see that yes, there was this has been planned. This this something that has happened is not uh, is not by chance. It's uh, designed by God and uh, carried and carried to its conclusion by God, but nobody knew it was coming to its conclusion until after it happened. And so there's a there's a sisterhood between uh, Hannah and Mary that I think is unmistakable. And Luke points it out because he gives Han- he, Mary's song is basically a revised version of of Hannah's song. Uh, now, I think that one other really beautiful thing about that story is um, that the the comfort that that must have given to to people upon sort of first reading these these stories, and that it continues to give us now that there is some sort of uh, plan there, that there there is a connection, that there's a through line to to Christ the King. Um, yes, that, that yeah, runs I, all the way through. Getting a little bit of a a seminar here in biblical history. Um, very rich Old Testament history, and I'd like to give you a chance to just say a brief word about that, uh, Father Clifford. New Testament isn't something that perhaps Catholics spend a lot of time with, but there's a there's a lot of there's a lot here to uh, that can kind of tell us about uh, our faith and and the connections with the Gospels, of course. Yes, because the uh, the old I think you have to see the New Testament as the culmination of a story that began long, long ago, and a story that at least in its early phases we share with the Jews all over the world. And uh, we don't often realize that as a great benefit and grace. Uh, and uh, without understanding the Old Testament, the New Testament just doesn't make much sense. Uh, and I think that it's it's the continuation of a story, and uh, God, the story of God's people. And uh, I think that's how I look at it anyway. And I, my, most of my time is trying to convince people who <laughs> know the, old, the New Testament. Exactly. I knew you'd well, have something to say on that. I think <laughs> it could be it can be easy to to look at it uh, and see only the differences that uh, between sort of what people often call, you know, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament and say, well, right. you know, I don't like the old one, so I'm just going to deal with the new one. Uh, so how yeah, do you... God how personality Well, certainly God didn't have a personality change. That's <laughs> right. How I do you kind of synthesize look, those? Well, I think if you look at uh, the Old Testament, and it, it's the same God, obviously, and Paul insists that, you know, it's God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and so on, and things that the, that are attributed to Yahweh or the, the Lord in the new, in the Old Testament are done by Jesus in the New, healing and raising from the dead and so on. But I, th- uh, I think it's, uh, it's important to see the Old Testament God not as wrathful or, as one of my nephews once said, ready to blow his top <laughs> in a given moment, but rather passionate and completely dedicated to uh, to Israel, uh, but the, what I find really striking in the Old Testament is God's passionate love and demands that come from passion. You know that's a marital metaphor that in the in the first commandment. Uh, but at the same time, in the next breath, God says, "But I know the weakness. I know you are made of clay, and I'm not going to really push you around too much." So you have passion, but com- compassion at the same time. Uh, and I think if you look at Jesus, he gets mad. he gets mad. I remember talking with somebody. He said Jesus never gets mad. I said you, that's an indication you've never read the Gospels. <laughs> he gets mad. Uh, Did and, they get mad uh, after that? But he at the same <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
but he uh but he also it's the the anger at times is a function of the passionate uh love and the prizing of the people that uh, is characteristic of his whole personality so i think you can't have one without the other really there's a great line in the, my one of my favorite passages in the book of hosea ch- chapter 11 which god demands that the people change and convert and then seeing them uh, not they're not going to do it then he says, then I'll convert, I'll change, because you won't. And, he's, and the reason he gives is, because I am God and not a human being. And I think that really, combi- that really catches both the passionate commitment and love, as well as the willingness to go along with what's there. And, that's, and we are what's there, and uh, we don't always respond, or do, frequently don't respond. So uh, I, I really, I mean, I, I know that people caricature the Old Testament God is wrathful and the New Testament God is sweet, but in Jesus can be wrathful and the Old Testament God can be sweet. It's the same God. It's just that uh, portrayed in different ways. So uh, Now, we start our conversation talking about Mary Magdala, um, and right. that's maybe where we'll end here, talking about that New Testament episode. And, of course, many people are familiar with that story, but maybe you can... Remind our listeners, uh, I guess looking towards the Easter season next year, uh, why this is so important. And the fact that, you know, the gospel writers had a woman play this role kind of testifies in many ways to its historical authenticity. Correct. All four gospels have the, the, the one person who is, faithful, who is present in the whole passion of Jesus when most of his other friends had, uh, disciples had fled, especially the men. Uh, she was there. And then when he was raised from the dead, uh, in all four Gospels, she was there. And in fact, in the Gospel of John, in that fabulous scene in chapter 20, uh, she doesn't know who it is. She knows somebody's up there in front, but she thinks it's the gardener. And then when he says her name, Mary, he, she recognizes who it is. And she's the one then that goes and tells the others that Jesus had been raised, but she's the apostle of the apostle. She's the one that who he first appears to, and she's the one that tells everybody else that he's there, that he's been raised from the dead. And I think that you can't get, uh, that's the most prestigious seat practically in the entire New Testament, that she was faithful, and that she was both faithful in his passion and faithful in his resurrection. And so there's a completeness to her. You know, in the course of... uh, in, in the course of writing this article and, and uh, having it edited by America's editors, and I'm not complaining about this. <laughs> <laughs> not to you anyway. Uh, not on live air. Uh, yeah. uh, Edith, uh, there, there, there was a quote by Edith Stein that I, that I would love to have had there, but there was, I didn't want to make the article too heavy. But Edith Stein, in, in many ways, reminds me of some of those women because she was a Jewish convert. She was a Jew who gave up her Jewish faith, and then later on in the, in the 1920s, uh, through the influence of reading uh, St. Teresa of Avila, became a Catholic and then became a Carmelite nun. And then, unfortunately, because she was Jewish, she was then uh, taken out of the convent where she was in uh, the Netherlands. Uh, so in a sense, she she's that kind of person that you see in the, the leadership. But she says this, and I think it really says so well and summarizes so well what I was trying to do in that, that series, it's this. She said, the, the greatest figures of prophecy and sanctity step forth out of the darkest night. But for the most part, the formative stream of the mystical life 
remains invisible. Certainly the most decisive turning points in world history are substantially co-determined by souls whom no history book ever mentions. And we will only find out about these souls to whom we owe the decisive turning points in our personal lives on the day when all that is hidden is revealed. Which I think really sums up uh, a lot of what I tried to do in that article. Well, what it does beautifully, I think, is it lifts up the stories um, that you're lifting up here and honors those. And it also honors stories of everyday women and men now that uh, who are making impacts on people's lives that are not necessarily going to be written about or seen um, or they won't become famous because of them. But it, it emphasizes the way in which we can really touch each other's lives and become turning points in each other's lives without... Uh, maybe sometimes without even realizing it, and certainly without ever being uh, honored for it. I know, and I suspect that possibly the possible exception of Mary Mag- Magdala, I don't think these people had any idea how significant their actions were, uh, and that their actions had a meaning and significance far beyond what they were experiencing at the moment. But they opened themselves up to that moment, and then their lives become suddenly hugely significant not only for themselves, but for their, for the people of whom, which to which they belong. I, th- I think, you, and you, you referenced that earlier in the in the season of Advent, the the idea that it's about awaiting that you know it's not just the next day and what we see in this moment, but it it's something that we may it's, it's awaiting that is beyond wow. our imagination. So you know that that's yeah, a, that's true. That's a that's a spiritual sort of insight for this for the season of Advent to pay attention to in our our own personal lives that. We may not even understand here and now how important the inbreaking of God in whatever's going on is going to be or will be or how it will be revealed. Right. And they just, it was a little town in Nazareth, and this is a little family, family drama that these people, I doubt, had any idea what they were caught up in. But uh, it was given significance by the God who had uh, engineered this whole thing and was leading them along. So it does show how people who do insignificant things and they don't realize how significant they really are. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful lesson for our time. And it's uh, interesting, as you note in the, the lead of this article, an interesting time to think about women in leadership uh, when we're going to have a record number of women serving quite literally in our in our Congress this year. Uh, following the midterm elections, so it will be interesting. Uh, hopefully, yeah. inspired. Uh, they will be inspired in part by some of the examples that you mentioned here, to toward good and yeah. powerful uh, leadership in in a positive way. That's right. If they can do it, le- uh, even one tenth of what these biblical women did, I'd be very happy. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate you're uh, your taking the time to be with us today. Feel, uh, readers and listeners who are interested in learning more, reading the whole thing, well worth your time, can go to americamagazine.org/serious to find Father Richard Clifford's article. Women have been leading since biblical times. They can lead again today, and indeed, as we've mentioned, they are, and uh, we're glad for it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is something that uh, Koki Roberts wrote for us, too, that you know, the more women in leadership, you know, using different kinds of skill sets, perhaps, um, in these cases, women using their brains rather than brawn, perhaps, maybe this is something we, sh- we should try in Congress. <laughs> <laughs> What are you saying, Tim, there? (laughs) Extrapolate on that a little bit. Elaborate. We Uh, could use change. It would be good. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed, yeah. So it's it's wonderful examples. You can find all our content uh, at americamagazine.org. 
Uh, and you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, social media, etc. Um, and you can always subscribe to America Magazine as well at 1-800-627-9533. Uh, on behalf of Father Eric Sundrup and Tim Reedy, we hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you very much for listening here on The Catholic Channel. Listening to the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.